Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Hello, this episode is sponsored by Handspring Publishing. When I wrote my Advanced Myofascial Techniques books, I was lucky enough to have two offers one from a huge international media company and the other from Handspring, a small publisher in Scotland, run by four lovely people. And I'm so glad that I went with my gut and chose them, Handspring, as not only did they help me make the books I wanted to share, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional-level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. Yes, indeed. Handspring has done a great job of expanding their offerings for the movement manual therapy professions. Their author list reads like a who's who for many of the leading thinkers in our field. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com and browse their excellent catalog there. And once you find the gems that you've got to have, then use the code TTP, like the thinking practitioner, that's TTP, at checkout for your discount. So uh, welcome, everybody, to this episode of The Thinking Practitioner. Till, how are you today? Doing great, Whitney. Thanks. Good. Well, we're going to be um, diving into some uh, lateral curvatures today, I think, is our topic. I think we're going to be addressing some things with scoliosis. That's our oh, plan, isn't it? Yeah, well, the debate's already started. Is scoliosis yes, a I, lateral curvature? Yeah, yeah. yeah that scoliosis is our topic. Is it a lateral curvature and other questions? Yeah. And right. uh, I'm, I'm excited about this one because it's, it's one of my favorite topics and I think there's also I think it's one of the topics where there are the most we could say misconceptions or oversimplifications amongst body workers yeah yeah you know it is certainly one of those words that gets bandied about quite a bit with without some some good um, definitions and clarifications about what people are talking about so we're going to try to drill down into that a little bit today I think and and see if we can nail some of those things down well can you tell us what it is what do we yeah, know about its so, causes, that kind of thing? Can you lay that out for us? Yeah, so let's look a little bit at uh, some of the basics of scoliosis. In a general category, we refer to uh, scoliosis most commonly as a lateral curvature of the spine. So this is if you're looking straight on at your client's back, this would be a, a curvature of the spine that goes to the left or the right. Now, it can curve in different directions. Uh, and again, the uh, the term scoliosis, we'll get into this a little bit later. There are some other times where you may run across it when it's talking about something that may seem not necessarily related to a lateral curvature but for the for all practical purposes that is the most common uh, definition of that you may periodically run into um, the terms levoscoliosis or dextroscoliosis and this is just getting more specific about the way that the curve is going so for example you might hear people talk about c curves or s curves so A C-curve would be one smooth curve throughout the whole spinal region where the spine is is curving just to one side only, and it looks like a sort of a a thinned-out letter C if you were looking at it straight on. And an S-curve would be one where it goes to one side and then it goes to another side in the spine uh, all throughout the the length of the spinal region. Mm. But a levoscoliosis would be one where the convex portion of the curve, that means sort of the bumping out portion of the curve, is going to the left. A dextroscoliosis being one where the curved or bumped out portion is going to the right. So that is uh, referred to as a dextroscoliosis. And then Far there's more also common some, pattern, by the way. 
Yes, and I, you know, was going to ask you about that because I don't know about this. Any idea why that is? No. <laughs> and there's some evidence that it's reversed in England. No way. Yeah, the left is more common in England, but not. Here's the because weird part. they drive on the wrong That's side of the, the road. Immediate conclusion. Yes, <laughs> right. right there. But it doesn't hold true in Australia, Japan, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, South Africa, other countries where they drive on the other side of the road. Uh huh. So that's not the reason. But we don't have right. no idea why. It's there's a higher prevalence of left convex scoliosis in England. That Every, is fascinating. Yeah, most places okay. it's right. It's more dominant. Yeah. Well, we will have to dig dig into that. See if we can figure that out a little bit there. So a uh, couple other terms I just want to uh, scoot across here too. You may run across the term AIS, um, which is the adolescent um, the the um, uh, scoliosis. Um, and now I'm adolescent, mind blinking. Uh, adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, adolescent. Uh, I was mind blanking on adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. Idiopathic uh, predominantly being the terms refer to something we don't really know the cause of. Um, and there seems to be a moderate, uh, frequent degree of, of occurrence with that adolescent idiopathic uh, scoliosis. My understanding, Till, and mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong about this, this is more frequent in uh, females, correct? Yeah, and the more severe it is, the, the higher the female dominance in that. So like with the most severe uh, curves of adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, it's about seven to one girls to boys. Yeah, and do you have any idea why that is? I was trying to like scratch again, scratch head, and see if I could figure out a, a rationale or come across a rationale for what that what that was about. This is the second time you've asked me why. Yeah, and they're both they were both I, about I, idiopathic. Right. Yeah. What is I idiop- want to know why. <laughs> we all want to know, know why. the answer. Yeah. What does idiopathic mean again? Yes, that's right. Yeah, we have no idea. We don't know so, why. Like we're gonna we're gonna rest there. We'll rest our case there. So. Uh, then also we've got the adult onset scoliosis, um, usually in adults where this is not related to something that's happening. Uh, or let me back up also a minute too, because we didn't um, sort of clarify. Back to when we talked about those three main categories, we talked about the idiopathic being one where we don't really know the cause for it. Congenital scoliosis being that which is something having to do with uh, deformities that are generally present at birth, some type of genetic defect or something that is causing that spinal curvature. Yeah, developmental things in utero. What's that? Developmental in utero, that kind of thing, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, right. And then the neuromuscular branch being those that seem to be caused by various neuromuscular disorders, sometimes, you know, muscular diseases that cause either atrophy, wasting, or different pulls on the spine, causing the spine to be bent into these different positions. That would be the neuromuscular category. Yeah. So in I, a, I think, sorry, I think that's, I think traumatic scoliosis would be in that category too. Like some people will have a serious injury or a wound or a surgery that will disrupt the control of their movement yeah. and position and posture and end up with scoliosis. And I think that would be the neuromuscular category. Right. Yeah. So the the adult onset scoliosis is one that comes on without any of the early childhood uh, indicators that this is going to be something that's a problem. And that can come from a, a number of different uh, causes. I was curious uh, when I was looking and reading a bunch about this as we were doing some preparation for this uh, episode, interesting the number of places, even on some of the official scoliosis sites that did not make the distinction uh, the distinction that we frequently speak about in the manual therapy world of structural versus functional scoliosis. They were really 
leaning very heavily on the structural causes. Yeah. We yeah, yeah. often make that distinction between structural being those that are about bone uh, causes, you know, the, the spinal curvature related to bone causes, and functional ones related to various different um, muscular or neuromuscular patterning causes. And we'll delve into that in a good bit uh, more detail as we uh, track a little later down through here. So um, those are some of the, the overall categories that you may hear when you're, you're hearing about that. So what, what do you think are some of the other things that we've uh, seen, heard about? There's a lot of myths out there about scoliosis. Mm. What other kind of things have you run across? Mm. Well, just continuing on your last comment about adult onset scoliosis, we often will think about idiopathic scoliosis as a teenage condition. And I th- you'll see statistics where they say about 80%, 85% of all scoliosis is AIS, uh, adolescent, idiopathic. And that's, again, that's people that are seeking treatment. But um, there's been some other study, much less, but some more recent study into the adult onset type, and it, they're saying or seeing that it's even more common than the adolescent one. So the idea that it is an adolescent issue might be one of the myths, that about up to 20% of all adults, up to like 40% of people at age 60, and then 68% at age 70. It's like the 70% at 70. 70% of all adults in this very large study had an observable scoliosis. Yeah, and I would wonder at, at that point as we begin talking about that, like how much of that is falling within the vision of structural versus functional scoliosis, because my suspicion is we're going to see a lot of those adult onset scoliosis falling into the functional category, those that are the result of other adapted neuromuscular patterns versus structural. All right, you uh, want to go there? Should we go to structural let's, functional? Let's talk about it a little bit. Okay, say more about that. You, you would see adult onset as probably being in the functional I would, I would, that would be my suspicion. And again, I don't have some good uh, hard evidence about that. But since we're talking about those adapted neuromuscular patterns, you know, the functional, what some you, examples yeah, of difference? what we might be talking about. Uh, uh, structural scoliosis, we've mentioned earlier, having to do with the bony deformities. But functional would be ones where, for example, a person, let's say, has a leg length discrepancy. Hmm. And one leg being longer than the other, when they're in a standing position, is going to tilt the pelvis to the other side. So let's say the right leg is longer structurally. The bones of the leg are longer. So it's going to tilt the pelvis to the opposite side. So they will consequently, because of the lumbosacral junction having such uh, relatively you know, strong and firm contact, uh, connections with the pelvis. As the pelvis tilts, it's going to tilt the lumbar vertebra to that same side. And you would then, with a long right leg, have a functional scoliosis that would be levoscoliosis in the lumbar region bending out to that side on the left side. So, so you're saying structural scoliosis has to do with the bones, functional has to do with the soft tissue? Well, yeah, or some other type of indicator that's not a bone disorder. I mean, that's sort of been my interpretation of what that distinction is. So um, that does that could get potentially a little murky. Uh, what do you? How do you see that in terms of that distinction? Does that make sense? I reject the distinction. All right, let's hear it. <laughs> I understand it. No, it's it yeah. comes from it comes from a treatment strategizing place. Saying, are we going to treat this in a bony or ligamentous way? Functional, yeah. sorry, structural scoliosis is thought to be related to the skeleton or the ligaments. Yeah. Or are we going to treat this in a functional or muscular way with movements or things like that that will help strengthen or uh, work with the muscular control? Yeah. So it's a strategic, okay. originally it's probably a strategic uh, distinction. And you can see it if you just have someone bend, side bend, left, straight left and right, 
One way will often be more curved than the other. The side that says straight is actually thought to be more structural. Well, let me put this, let's start over. The side that doesn't bend as much is thought to be more of a structural thing. The side that bends a lot is thought to be functional. So in other words, can I straighten out my scoliosis by just movement? Then it's thought to be functional. If I can't mm -hmm. straighten it out with movement, then it's thought to be structural, just the way I'm built. Yeah. Now, the way I, so, the reason I, re go ahead, no, you had a question? No, go ahead, go ahead and complete that. The reason I'm there. saying I reject that, I'm not saying it's totally baloney. It's, there's, there's, of course, there's something there. But as body workers, it doesn't help me determine how I'm going to work on it or if I'm going to work on it. Okay. I've heard other body workers say, well, body work is mostly good for functional. And then Ida Rolf's uh, position, the flag she raved, was, well, actually, we can change structure. So it's for that, too. But in my approach these days, after you know 30-something years of pondering scoliosis and working with it, I don't know that it matters. I still work with both of them in the same way because my goals apply to both. Yeah. Well, so I don't so, spend a lot of time trying to determine is it structural or functional. I do spend a lot of time determining does it move or not. Yeah. So here's a place where I would see trying to make that distinction. And again, we may be playing with semantics a little bit of, uh, around this, but if, if a person has, let's say to go back to the example I gave a moment ago, the person who has a, a true bone leg length discrepancy yeah. and that produces a scoliosis, would you consider that a structural or functional scoliosis? I don't use the terms. Okay. <laughs> Sorry okay. not to play, but it's <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I would say classically, it's a, obviously structural. It's their bone yeah. length. I mean, in terms of like something they could... Um, just relax a muscle and change. Yeah, right. But what I'm saying is I still work with both of them, and they, we can help both of them. Yeah. And the reason, again, part of the reason why, just to, to extend on that example, why I think it's valuable to look at that distinction is going back to that same example, the person who has a leg length discrepancy with the bones being longer on the right side, and that is going to tilt their pelvis to the left, okay? Now, the ideal sort of uh, in an orthopedic environment, the treatment strategy for that is going to focus on trying to level the legs and balance the pelvis, most likely by putting a lift in the left shoe, right? Okay. All right. Now that might have been evaluated. Let's say they were doing this possibly with a person supine on the treatment table. Let's say they did that same thing. They looked at somebody on a treatment table and they uh, said, oh, your right leg is longer than your left leg by putting them supine on the treatment table and looking at their leg lengths and saying, okay, your left leg is shorter than your right leg, so we need to put a lift in your left shoe. But in actuality, their bone lengths are identical. Uh, the, on the left side of their lumbar region, their quadratus lumborum is really tight and hiking that pelvis up when they get in that position. And if you put a lift under that person's left shoe, you're actually going to aggravate the problem as opposed to alleviating it. And that's kind of where I was talking about the importance of making that structural versus functional discrepancy. Okay, and does that influence your hands-on treatment? Well, I don't know that it would make a big difference in what we are actually doing with people, but it my, might make a difference exactly. in what we're recommending to people to, or what we're saying that they have, uh, you know, if they say they've had this done, like they went to somebody and they told me to put this lift in my shoe, and you're thinking, oh, wait a minute. This, you know, could be actually making things worse if it's not um, evaluated correctly. Well, it's tricky to 
second guess or put opinions on someone else's recommendations too, and I'd probably yes, try to is. avoid that. But yeah. no, and my point being, it doesn't affect my treatment choices. Yeah, as a manual therapist. Now, yeah. if if I was a you know, there's other places where it certainly would. But whether they have femurs the same length or different lengths, th- my goals are still going to be refined proprioception and options for movement. And that helps people. Yeah. So we need to get to the myths because you asked about that. And that's and some of that's in the in the background of w- what we're talking about here. I'm also going to, uh, if I th- remember, I'm going to get back and um, uh, refute, let's say, or challenge your idea that the quad, the QL on the, that side is pulling the pelvis up. Okay, let's remember to do that. All right. Yeah. Anyway, so some of the myths. Uh, first myth that we really got to talk about, that scoliosis is a problem. Because even so far in our conversation, we've been talking about treating it, maybe even correcting it. And the big uh, thing to keep in mind is most of the time, it's not a problem. In that it doesn't, people with scoliosis do not have pain more often than people without scoliosis. Scoliosis. Is, I think that's a big one. That's of, huge. Like, yeah, because we just have, we've seen this as a structural thing and think we have to fix it yeah. or something. And like, yeah. yeah. So I mean, maybe we should like even like go back and put this right at the beginning because that's the big thing. It's like just because someone has a curve in their spine doesn't mean you have to go in there and try to fix it. In yeah. fact, as we saw for many years uh, in the rolfing world, sometimes we can really work to align people and they feel much worse. They mm-hmm. have more pain. They won't feel as balanced. Because yeah. they're a different shape. Right. And it, I'm biting my tongue about structural and functional. But okay. <laughs> there's more to say there. But right, basically, we'll that first here. one, uh, scoliosis is a problem. Back pain incidents. Yeah. I just got to repeat that again because I love that fact. Back pain incidents. Yeah. And this is something you can share with your scoliosis clients. Back yeah. pain is not more common in people with scoliosis than people without scoliosis. Just because yeah. you have a curved spine doesn't mean you're going to hurt necessarily any more than anybody else is going to hurt. And I think that is really fascinating because that really, I, you know, that also lets us extrapolate those ideas. Well, if let's say we want to take the chance and extrapolate those ideas into some other things and talking about other supposed structural challenges in the spine, it really makes us think twice about how, how much do we have to fix those other supposed structural challenges if people can get along with all kinds of scoliosis problems and not have pain with it. Yeah. Now, the, the little, that's right. That's exactly it. And the footman note I should put in there is that if you have scoliosis and you have back pain, there is some evidence that it could be worse. The people with a scoliosis, when they do get back pain, it tends to be worse. Yeah. So it's something to try to avoid and prevent. And the movement and adaptability and using your body seems to be the way to do that. But just because you're curved doesn't mean you're going to hurt. Now, yeah. the other footnote that I should stick in there is up to a point. And we're going to talk a little later about when scoliosis, when it really matters. But yeah. for the vast majority of people walking in your door, it's um, they're not more likely to have pain than people without pain. So you don't have to fix it. Second yeah. myth, scoliosis is an S or a C. Or you could say sometimes it's a you know triple major, like a S with three curves is even documented for curved scoliosis, things like that. That comes from our legacy of photographs and x-rays, mm-hmm. where we look at a, we take a picture or we take an x-ray that come out flat. We see the scoliosis in one plane, and we say it's a curve to the side, a lateral. That's by definition, a scoliosis is a lateral curvature that doesn't yeah. straighten out. Well, 
you mentioned in our uh, trading notes back and forth beforehand, Freyette's Laws, and there's a lot of other reasons why people say whenever it curves one way, it curves in all ways. So it's, you're not going to see in nature a spine that's just curved to the side and doesn't rotate, say, or doesn't uh, flex and extend a little bit, too. Yeah, so you're saying at the same time that it's got curvature to the side, there is also motion in other planes of those vertebrae that are not pure um, motion that it's supposed to be doing. Yep, that's right. And there's, there are some arguments about which of those motions are coupled. Yeah. But everyone agrees that when you move in one plane, you move in all planes. No one's saying yeah. that the spine just moves in one plane. So, But yet our thinking that scoliosis is just a lateral curvature informs the ways we approach it. Then we think, okay, we got to straighten it out. we got to mm-hmm. lie them on their side and stretch out the concave side, yeah. you know, or strengthen the convex side. The goal yeah. then becomes straightening people out in a single plane. Mm-hmm. And it's really helpful. It really helped my work when I really started realizing it's a helix. It's a three-dimensional spiral. It's yes, not just an right. X-curve. Yeah. And a, a good example for, for those who may have a little bit of challenge visualizing some of what you're talking about with the coupled motions um, you see this moderately frequently in, in scoliosis, especially the uh, adolescent uh, idiopathic scoliosis. You see that frequently in the thoracic region, something called the rib hump, which is if the person is in a prone position, they will have one side of their upper rib cage may be more elevated than the other. And that is often a relationship with the lateral curvature in the spine so that as the um, vertebra curve to one side, they also rotate to the opposite side, which pushes the transverse processes in a posterior direction, making that side of the back appear higher or lifted up compared to the other side. So that's a, an example, a clinical example of how you might see that idea of, of coupled motions of not only pure lateral curvature, but lateral curvature with rotational movements simultaneously. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And we and in, in our approach, we use the couple motion idea to get it moving in all three planes. That's one of yeah. our goals, to help right. things move in all three planes. And people feel great. People feel so much better yes. when right. that's happening. Yeah. Next myth, ready for the next myth? Yes, indeed. Uh, the myth here, scoliosis is a spinal condition. Now, this gets back maybe to my... Uh, indoctrination is a rolfer where we really looked at everything big picture. We said it's never just the thing. It's always the whole. Mm-hmm. And scoliosis is one of those examples where you don't just see it curving the spine. You see the rib cage, of course, changing. You see the pelvis changing. You see the upper girdle, the, li- the upper limbs uh, being either affected or perhaps affecting the scoliosis. Sometimes scoliosis talked about it being either top down that is involving the cranium or shoulder girdle or bottom up involving the legs or pelvic girdle. But the whole body is affected. There were stories about Ida Rolf distributing a photograph of just somebody's armpit and saying, okay, so is their left leg internally rotated or externally rotated from this photograph? And, you know, she could tell, the, the story goes. But her point was that the pattern of scoliosis is going to be reflected throughout the whole body. And uh-huh. so that, yeah. And so that in our approach, if our goals, my goals, more movement, options, and refined proprioception, that's going to involve the whole body too. So I really do start my scoliosis work with the limbs and girdles. We really, make, yeah. we really check to see are the arms and legs adaptable. The extreme case, I remember a, a, a six-day scoliosis training I did at the Rolf Institute years ago as a student. I was a participant. 
we probably spent most of the first five days on the legs and pelvis, honestly. So is the idea that if you are treating, for example, the extremities there, that you are then affecting some other aspects of the spinal structure by addressing the extremities? Or how does that, is there a sort of a, what's the connective process? Less linearly. It's not, it's like if I do the legs, then I affect the spine. It's thinking, we step back and we say, okay, we're seeing spinal curves. That's part of a whole body curve. Mm -hmm. To give someone more options for movement, our goal, then we need to look at the whole body. We need to see how the legs and arms are uh, involved in that rotation we see the spine yeah yeah and i imagine too there's there's some other um factors that we really would need to consider about function too like what kinds of things are people doing on a regular basis that might impact the way their body moves uh or is impacted by those positional challenges if we call them something like that well yeah you could you'd wonder about asymmetrical activities like is Mm -hmm. that uh, dextroscoliosis more common in right-handed people or something like that. Not, yeah. not a lot of evidence that asymmetrical activities are involved with scoliosis. Yeah. But for sure, bilateral activities, things that involve both sides of the body, are helpful to get all those options for movement. That seems to be the helpful thing. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, more myths? Yeah, you got some more? I got a couple. You, oh, let's you hear stop them. me. You stop okay. me when the, Okay. I mean, these are good. I love these. Ta- yeah. Well, you're talking just reminded me of these. Right. The, I think I already talked about this one. Body work can help with functional but not structural scoliosis. Body work helps with both. But let's redefine help because so many times practitioners assume help means straighten them out. Yeah. That's not my goal. That's not my goal. It's not even a useful goal. I mean, sometimes it's yeah. the client's goal, but really, I mean, I got a note to talk about that when we talk about how to apply this. First step is really getting the client's goals. And yeah. my goal. And what, so what are frequently, like what would you see as the, the primary goals there is is pain, less pain, um, you know, oh, yeah. le, I'm not going to say pain-free, but less pain movement or more freedom of movement or yeah, I guess that's, of course, individual on what that uh, client actually wants. But, you know, what, what do you see is most commonly? My, yeah, I start with the client's goals. But then mm-hmm. I do a conversation or reality check around what my goals are, and they're based on what I uh, am good at, what I think is realistic, and what I think is most effective. Mm-hmm. But those yeah. are, it's only two. I only have two goals. One is more options for movement. So I'm looking to find out where and how they don't move and helping them move more in those ways. And that's both on the really small level of joint adjustment and on big range of motion ways. Yeah. And the other one is refined proprioception. Can they really feel their bodies in a more accurate uh, way? And some of that is the whole, it's basically increasing body awareness, refining body awareness. Mm-hmm. And that helps a lot with pain. And so does yeah. the movement options. Those two things help with pain. Often the scoliosis person, um, like I said, they're probably not more likely to be in pain than anybody else. But if they do come in with pain, I work with them as I would back pain. If they have back pain, then I work with them as I do back pain. They've got a lot of tools for back pain. If they have sciatic pain, I work with it as sciatic pain. So do you see, um, for example, when somebody comes in, like, um, would you talk with them and educate them about, we're not going to try to change your spinal shape here. What We're going to try to help you move more freely or things like that. Or do you sort of talk mm-hmm. with them along those lines of, I'm not even going to begin to try to change your spinal structure. That's not even necessary. Yeah. How, do you, how do you kind of address well, that? Well, I mean, a lot of clients will... Yeah, let's put it this way. Probably in my 
practice, at least in my limited data set, a lot of people have come because somebody else tells them they have scoliosis. They don't even have yeah. an internal experience of that. Yeah. So they're just come, they've been told they have a problem and it should be addressed. Mm-hmm. Now, there are definitely times to do that. We're going to talk about when it really matters. Yeah. But there's other times, like if it's under 20 degrees or they're already an adult, uh, et cetera, where they stay mobile, they stay uh, you know, engaged with their body, they're going to be fine. Yeah. You know, you know, so mm-hmm. it's, then, it's like, then it is reframing it. I remember one uh, client who came to me, she said, uh, I want you to help with my scoliosis. I hear you're really good at that. And my first question is, okay, so why? And why did you want to address this now? Her daughter was getting married, and she wanted to look even in her daughter's wedding pictures. She had a uh-huh. dress in mind that would really show uh, her scoliosis. Uh-huh. And so there was a case where, well, my usual conversation, like you said, it's like, well, you know, my goal isn't going to try to get you straight. It's trying to get you comfortable and movable and adaptable. Right. But her goal really was to be straight. So I had to have a kind of honest conversation with her and say, you know, there are times that this helps people be really straight. I have photos in my old collection when we used to take photos before and after every session that are dramatic changes, as do a lot of other practitioners. But honestly, if we're really honest, um, not everyone changes dramatically visually. Maybe most people don't change dramatically in a visual sense from any treatment. Even yeah, the, even and the, the other question, of course, how long do those changes last? And then I there's mean, that question. That's yeah. right. right. That's right. So yeah. in, for, in her case, because her goal was so much about looking straight, we worked in the mirror with her perception inside out of what straight felt like. Yeah. So she could find it for the picture, basically. Mm-hmm. And then we did more work around her mobility and comfort, but she wasn't in any pain. And so once she felt comfortable being straight, she was done with me. Yeah. Now, there's other people that will work with on a more ongoing basis in a maintenance sense to keep them mobile and keep them in their body in a way that helps them deal with the asymmetries they have in their body because they are, in some ways, more challenging. Yeah, right. Huh. That's, that's you know, big challenges, I think, that really um, are important for us as practitioners to, to get a different perspective. Uh, so much of the way we tend to look at things does come from that kind of fix-it mentality or fix-it mindset, and it's really um, so crucial a lot of times to kind of step outside that box and say, well, let's, let's talk about lifestyle and function and, and what, what are really realistic kinds of goals to be, to be uh, pursuing here. Lifestyle, function, yeah. body image, acceptance of your own yeah. body. I mean, I say to myself, I don't say this to the clients, but I say my goal is to help straighten out people's ideas, not their back. Oh, I like that. Yeah. yeah that's a good bumper sticker. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> or a T-shirt. Yeah. Oh, boy. So, so that's, yeah. I mean, I could go on forever, but I'm just wondering, is this a good time for our halftime thing? I think this is perfect time for that. All so right. uh, let's uh, let's hear from who's sponsoring us today at halftime. Halftime sponsor is ABMP, Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership combines the insurance you need, they say, the free CE you want, that's for sure, because both Whitney and I have things there, and the personalized service you deserve. They are featuring their new dynamic five-minute muscle review app with muscle-specific palpation and technique videos and the award-winning Massage and Bodywork magazine, where Whitney and I are both frequent contributors. Yes, it's certainly easy to see why all these members love ABMP. I personally have been a member for years, and it's clear the organization is driven to offer loads of key benefits to their members, and their primary focus is on delivering exceptional opportunities and services. 
And any of our listeners who join ABMP as new members can save $24 on their membership at abmp.com forward slash thinking. So with ABMP, you can expect more. All right. So uh, we kind of drifted into a little bit of this before the halftime, but um, let's talk a little bit more about, you know, manual therapies in terms of what we want to be doing and what are some of the, the treatment strategies that are engaged for people with, with scoliosis. We already kind of mentioned and we're talking about, eh, we're probably not wanting to be focusing so much attention on how you straighten this spine. Now, of course, Many people, if they have, let's say, severe congenital scoliosis and they're going a traditional orthopedic route, might be having surgery where that is the surgeon's goals. But so many, many people who have scoliosis issues, and especially the adult onset things, that probably isn't uh, necessary or something ideally in their uh, preferred treatment plans. So uh, yeah. you know, what kind of things uh, that we should be focusing on here? That's, so, that's really the key question. And to talk yeah. about that, we do need to talk about when it's a problem. Yeah. And like I mentioned, under 20 degrees, adults likely to, unlikely to get uh, progress, get more curves. Uh, but in a young person, like a kid, and especially adolescents, then it's um, probably not something, well, it's not, it's not something you want to just try to treat with manual therapy. They yeah. need to be assessed because uh, the younger and the more severe, then the bigger the chance that it could, could keep getting more severe as they grow. And at some point, it is a problem. At some yes, point, right. uh, classically, it says, you know, 30 to 40 percent, uh, 30, 40 degrees, 30, 40 degrees, you could have uh, breathing impairment, heart impairment, organ function mm-hmm. impairment. Uh, so at some point, it's a serious issue. And there is a window of opportunity around adolescence, a couple of years before and after adolescence, when their uh, bracing seems to be particularly effective to keep it from progressing more. Yeah. And then at some point... I'm, I'm going to pause just please, for a second yeah. here to backtrack for our, our listeners here. <clears throat> You've made a couple of references to degree measurements oh, here. Yeah. So are you referring to the Cobb angle? I am. Uh, when you're talking about those degree measurements? Yes. Okay. Cobb Can angle. you just... Yeah, briefly tap on that for our listeners to clarify what we're talking about there. Yeah, thanks, Lenny. It's it's the difference in the greatest uh, off vertical vertebrae. So essentially, you take the two vertebrae that are the most tilted and on an X-ray, you draw lines through them, and you measure the angle between those lines, and that's your Cobb angle. It's a measure of how side bent you are in that plane. It only does one plane, so it's not perfect. At all. Yeah. So, and note that's going to require an X-ray to really be able to do that Absolutely. appropriately. So that's not something we're going to do clinically with people, but they no. may come in having been to some other medical professional who was looking at X-rays and giving them some indications of of angles associated with that. So, that's just right. want to clarify that for everybody there. Thank you. Yeah. Um. So you're asking about body work. Uh, yeah, and then we just had, uh, we were wrapping up to saying, you know, the, the younger that that um, person was and the more potential there is for it to become problematic, they do definitely want to get that addressed, especially if, if that angle is, is pretty significant with them because uh, That's right. time can continue. Like if there's, a, if there's a curvature present, the continual progression of that curvature can keep going in the wrong direction as opposed to moving back into a natural straight position. Now, there are instances, of course, where scoliotic things will occur in adolescence and they will kind of flesh themselves out and straighten up a bit. So oh, lots, um, lots yeah. of times or, or even more common scoliosis appears and, 
doesn't turn into a problem. Yeah. They continue their life and they got a little bit of curve and they're great. Yeah. I think I had read a, this was a popular news story, I don't know, a couple of years ago or something like that. The uh, um, sprinter, world-class sprinter Usain Bolt yes. has scoliosis. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so like that's always a great example of like, yeah, you can function pretty good yes. uh, under lots of conditions with scoliosis and does not necessarily have to be fixed. That's right. Yeah. yeah, well, and then there's stories, too, about people with scoliosis with pain. There are times it's a yeah. problem. Yeah. But again, in manual therapy, from a manual therapy point of view, at least in my view, I work with pain as pain. I mm-hmm. don't work with scoliosis pain as scoliosis. Yeah. And so let me ask sure. this question, since we're kind of going along that direction, and you had brought this up earlier. Um, people look at this from in, in terms of a simplistic picture about treatment strategies for addressing scoliosis. Let's just take something really simple, like a a C curvature of the spine, which is relatively simple to visualize. One side is shorter, the concave side is shortened, the convex side appears to be lengthened. So the idea Uh that we would have as manual (laughs) therapists, hey, we should go in and and work on that shortened side so those things relax and straighten the spine out. So what do you think about that? The bowstring model. If we see it bowed, then we're going to go work on the bowstring, lengthen the bowstring, because that's got to be pulling it tight. Exactly. Pulling it closed. Well, the research doesn't really back that up. I mean, it's yeah. it's what I learned, and we get very intricate. You know, you work one way below yeah. the cur- apex of the curve, another way above the apex of the curve. You can get so involved in that about exactly which structure and looking at the limbs. The way that the problem is when you measure the forces required to bend the spine, the muscles of the trunk aren't strong enough to do that. Yeah. Period. Especially with their their anchoring locations so close to the spine, yeah, the, the, the angles, axis rotation is not powerful enough to, yeah. It's mm-hmm. pretty safe to say the spine is not being bent by the muscles. Yeah. Now, there are ways that the muscles could uh, contribute to movement restrictions. Mm-hmm. Like in order to bend uh, any direction, you have to be able to lengthen the muscles. If the muscles yeah. aren't used to lengthening or you're, you don't let them lengthen, then it's going to be hard to bend that way. Yeah. So that's the the role for soft tissue, in my view. We do. I mean, it, it ends up being looking like we're lengthening the short side, mm-hmm. but it's from this more modern model that says it's not a physical passive quality of the tissues we're trying to change as much as tolerating movement in a direction that's unfamiliar. Yeah. So would you say our our goal is really more about um, creating new options um, for movement neuromuscular patterning and yeah yeah new options for proprioceptive patterning and things like that to occur in those areas that maybe are helped with you know reductions of pain through yes. descending modulation all those other magical things that happen from touching people so my goal is uh, options for movement and yeah. refined proprioception mm-hmm. pain i put aside for now yeah, for another discussion. Maybe we'll have one on pain. But the, but yeah. when I when I get options for movement and I get refined proprioception, a lot of pain gets handled. That's what I was saying. Yeah, that's sort of like the the resultant process yes. of us as focusing in those in those directions. Exactly. Yeah. So exactly. Yeah. So yeah. manual therapy's role. Um, really, I got to say it again. What's the client's goal? We got to have a conversation mm-hmm. early on about their context because it's something we're going to do together. Whatever we do, we're going to do it together. I don't really think of manual therapy anymore as lying a client down and passively changing them in a way. Yeah. There are some things I can do with my hands that are pretty effective and they don't have to even know or participate. But the, especially the question of does it last and is it going to be available, 
that involves some level of participation. And it might be active movement. It might be them actually feeling or breathing with me or understanding. Yeah. So to, uh, to get them to participate, I have to understand what their goals are. Mm -hmm. Right. So while we were kind of like on this thing with the um, movement and manual therapy interventions, I just want to call back. You um, called me on something a little while ago with the quadratus lumborum thing. Is this a time that we would revisit <laughs> yeah. that? Yeah. I'd, I'm curious to hear your perspective well, on that. Well, it's a big discussion, but it's yeah. you. your statement, I think I remembered was, well, it could be functional in that the QL could be tight and pulling the right hip up. Yeah. If the QL is tight... First of all, there's a whole discussion about what tight means. Yeah, is that a, right, is that right. a passive thing? Yeah. Is it an active thing? Does it change? Is it a sensation of tightness? Is it a measurable thing? Et cetera. But let's just yeah. leave that aside for a minute. Let's say go somehow it is pulling. Mm -hmm. Is it going to pull the leg, the hip up? Or is it going to pull the trunk over? Which is the fixed point? Well, that becomes a, a, a question that might depend on the position that the body is in. So, for example, um, you know, maybe a person's, uh, let's say a person is standing. Yes. Um, uh, that maybe their riding reflex, their, you know, vestibular balance reflexes, uh, let's say the, the quadratus is pulling in those directions, maybe it would have a tendency to pull the spine to that side. But their vestibular riding reflexes make them want to stand up straight. Would that, and I'm asking the question because I don't know, would that possibly then cause the quadratus to lift and pull the pelvis up off of its resting on the greater trochanter to lift the pelvis a little bit higher? I mean, I've seen that what comes clinically up? happen in people with extremely hypertonic spasming low back muscles and a hiked pelvis on that side when they're in a standing position. Um, and the same thing happening once they get in a non-weight-bearing position, it's a lot easier yes. for that um, pelvis to get lifted up as opposed to the back being or the trunk being pulled. I see side. the same pattern. I don't assume yeah. it's the erectors causing it. I don't think the erectors are the chicken. I think they may be the egg. Oh, I agree. I think it's not the erectors. I think it's more likely the, the quadratus. Doing oh, I don't think the quadratus is a chicken either. I think it's the egg. Really? Yeah. So what's doing it? What's doing it? I don't think I need to know that even. I think I need uh -huh. to know how to work it. Uh -huh. But I don't assume that it's tight muscles pulling something up. First of all, the okay. because tight is so debatable. Are we yeah. talking about resting tone? Yeah, we can. that's a great thing for massage therapists to think about, for example, because you're thinking about relaxing. If we can get it to relax, then we've helped. There's something to that. But it may not have a higher resting tone. You go palpate someone's tissue on their back who has scoliosis, the muscles in the tight, in the, rather tight, in the concave side are not going to be necessarily more tight. You often oh, yeah. won't yeah. feel and more I, tonus you know, there. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that because I think in a lot of instances we may be talking about two different things when we talk about a, you know, a um, muscularly induced lateral pelvic tilt from severely, significantly hypertonic muscles versus a person who's just got scoliosis, which appears to be maybe related to some there you go. muscular involvement. There you go. So, if, yeah. if I find severe hypertonus, like really hard to the touch, and they're obviously you know contracted, then definitely I'm going to work with that. But yeah. I, just because of the position, I don't assume that's what's happening. Right. Uh -huh. Because there are other things that could uh, you know contribute or reinforce perpetuate yeah. that position mm -hmm. let me um okay are we kind of done with that sure I think. sure i mean we, okay yeah. yeah i mean we can of course 
probably spin off on this for a couple hours at a time. Well, but maybe that, one more uh, comment. In, in yeah. practice, what I do is I look to see how people can move, or I feel how yeah. they can move. If they can move that way, good. I don't have to try to relax it, lengthen it, whatever mm -hmm. anymore. We got the movement. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we really have a lot of kind of unlearning to do uh, about looking at things from a, a pretty mechanistic uh, viewpoint. Mm. Um, and just because that's the way we're sort of taught, and that's the way a lot of um, musculoskeletal science has been taught for a long time. So there's, there's certainly interesting perspectives to blend about that. that um, like there's a lot of instances where that kind of perspective is really valuable and very pertinent, and there's a lot of other instances where it uh, it doesn't fit the model quite quite as easily. So, and scoliosis uh, is a great scoliosis was my Waterloo, you could say. It's the one where I yeah. kept dashing myself against the rocks of yeah. my clients with my theories that I'd learned so carefully and thoroughly. Yeah, and it wasn't helping. Wasn't yeah. working, mm -hmm. and so I really did have to go through and rethink it. And um, you're getting my current formulation after right. really, you know, like you said, uh, having to unlearn a lot of what I knew and yeah. seemed to be right to me, but uh, changing my mind. So you, in essence, became the thinking practitioner. Huh. Then. Yeah. Let's right. see. There you go. Let's uh, right. let's not be the overthinking. But, right. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's really simple. So let me ask an, another question here in relation to what we're doing with manual therapy, because um, there may be instances where you come upon clients who have had, let's say, a severe congenital scoliosis, which has been surgically treated, and they're uh, having Harrington rods, or which are the, for the rods that they put in a person's spine to straighten it out when they have a surgical treatment of scoliosis. Yes. Concerns, cautions, thoughts about working with people who have rods and bracing in their spine. The usual uh, surgical considerations apply. If it's a recent surgery, then no, you let it heal. Uh, we're, that's about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, I mean, there's, there's, there's more. It's what typically happens. It, Harrington rods is an older form. I don't know that they're used much at all in North America yeah. anymore because they were straight. They were based on the x-ray view of scoliosis as a lateral curve. And yeah. you could take an x-ray before and after and say, look, it's straight now. There's lots mm -hmm. of those, but it didn't address the three-dimensional aspect. It didn't address the movement aspect, and so um, there were complications. Not everyone with Harrington rods has complications. A lot of people still have them in their body and do well with them, but the, one of the complications was they would isolate the movement to the upper and lower ends of the rod so that the yeah, joints right. at the two ends of the rod would be, it, it more be demanded on them in movement, and they would, after a few decades, be more likely to show arthritis than other joints in the spine. Yeah. And certainly, as, as we now know, there's lots of other um, functional, biomechanical, and physiological challenges that come along with fusing vertebra and stopping movement at those motion segments, even if it's not the ideal type of movement. It certainly can can cause some other kinds of things later on to be yeah. seriously problematic. Yeah. I'm careful about how I talk about that with, as I'm sure you are, with uh, yeah. clients, because uh, it's also true that a lot of people have, like I said, have rods and have fusions and do just great. And then yeah. my and my approach then is let's get everything moving throughout the spine, including cervicals, including actually hip joints, SI joints, mm -hmm. all that. If if that's all moving, it does relieve, you know, the demands on those two ends of the rod. Yeah. The other thing about rods is I don't. I'm not trying to bend them. By the way, I'm not trying to get them to curve. Yeah. But I don't assume they're fixed. People will yeah. still have the experience of movement and sensation 
and proprioception, even in the sections of their spine that have a rod. It's actually been my clients and some of our students who have really strongly come back and said, work the rods, work the zones with the rods. And we're not trying to bend uh-huh. them. We're trying to bring yeah. back options for subtle movement, lots of refined proprioception, and uh, bringing them in some ways back into the brain's map of what's happening in the body. And that seems to yeah. be really helpful. Yeah. So these are, you know, important considerations if people have had some of those kinds of things and you may or may not know some of the other treatments that people have gone through mm. when they have had uh, this. So this, these are some, some really key considerations for what we can contribute as manual therapists. And this is one of those instances I see frequently where, you know, we may be working in conjunction with other health professionals who, you know, let's say somebody may be going to their physician or orthopedist and trying to have some things done with uh, the more structural aspects of that, and they're coming to see you at the same time. So that's just, this is an important time to take into consideration. You had kind of called attention to this, and I think this is really important that we don't ever try to, you know, supersede anybody else's perspective or practice about the mm-hmm. way they're trying to address this, but there's lots of different ways that we can approach the the perspective of what we're doing with people. I, I really liked your ideas in talking about just refining proprioception and refining um, you know, encouraging movement and just freedom of movement mm-hmm. and, and reduction of Options those symptoms. For movement. So, yep, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. W- one more thing about rods. Um, you can help the rest of the body accommodate the rod. Mm-hmm. A lot of times yeah. you'll see a rod surgery, the spine is straight, the one shoulder's still a lot higher, one arm is still more internally rotated than the other, the legs are. And there I'm not trying to go straighten everything out. I'm trying to make sure that everything can move in every direction. Yeah. Yeah. So in doing that, do you you sort of run through kind of a functional movement evaluation to see how a person's movement is impaired or limited, or how do you kind of make that uh, determination? We have a series of assessments. I mean, it's we got a two-day training, and it's really just the overview. we got a series of assessments that are movement and hands-on assessments to feel for those things we described and to help yeah. the, the client feel, too, uh, you know, the options for movement and their proprioception. Yeah. Great. So how about some other uh, resources or things like that? Any things that people might be aware of or wanting to, to kind of know about there yeah, that would be helpful? It's so it's so important to understand that it you're, you shouldn't be the only practitioner for someone with a moderate to severe scoliosis. Mild scoliosis is not necessarily a problem. Like, you know, under 35 degrees, that's, that's said to be the underserved population because they're not to the point where... They, uh, an orthopedist would want to brace them, or surgery is not even until 60 degrees or so. But under 35, relatively mild scoliosis, lots of movement, lots of things you can do to help. But they also should be doing things with their balance and proprioception. So balance sports or wobble boards or functional things that they're doing where it does challenge their balance in all directions. There's some clear correlations between scoliosis and vestibular or abnormal maladies that there's more postural sway in people with scoliosis. So if you can work with that proprioceptive sense of balance, it seems to help prevent Mm -hmm. scoliosis from becoming problematic. Yeah. Strength and conditioning is the other category, that there is statistically lower muscle tone and less strength in people with scoliosis. So it helps people a lot to stay fit, essentially, to stay active, to be doing things they enjoy, and multi-directional, multi uh, movement kind of activities that help the whole body to stay in shape. That seems to help people manage their scoliosis quite a bit. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, when we talk about movement things and strengthening conditioning too, um, you know, letting people understand the sort of composite motions and things like that that are so important throughout the spine because some people would get this idea, well, like, I shouldn't do any movements where I'm bending to that side because that's huh. the side that's short already, and I don't want to over-strengthen those muscles because it'll pull my spine even that's further. Right. So, that's right. Yeah, so uh, I think it's helpful to clarify with them that that's not really exactly how it works. So That's not how yeah. I see it. That's how I phrase yeah. it. Because sometimes, I, I'm just thinking of a couple of clients recently, they're told very explicitly by their physical therapist, working, say, like Scroth method or something, some of the um, other approaches, what movements are good and which movements are bad. And I don't want to argue yeah. with them. I don't see it that way. Yeah. I don't argue with them. I just encourage them to stay mobile and to explore all options to the extent that feels right. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Uh, being well, other good I guess the other things. bullet point, other thing about resources, psychosocial, uh, meaning things like body image or having support or normalizing the experience, mm-hmm. especially like adolescent idiopathic, typically affecting girls more than boys at a time that your body image is really a big uh Thing that you're developing and getting to know and testing out and the social context is so important that the impact of say having to wear a brace certainly but even like having a rib cage it's a little bumpy on one side can be really big for a kid or for anybody and so there's lots of ways to get support for that there's some really interesting online forums one of them is like curvygirls.com for adolescent for teenage girls uh-huh. where they uh, learn about scoliosis and they have like a social media platform and things like that. Uh-huh. Great, great. Those sound like some some wonderful for good resources here. And, and of course, this is a tremendously deep topic. We could go uh, on and on and we'll probably revisit this with some other future episodes, but there's uh, so much in there that I think... Um, you know, we the, the real key important takeaways, I think, are not feeling like we have to change structure with people. And there's lots of things that we can do that can be very beneficial for for numerous individuals that, that are, are working with these challenges. Keep them moving. Give them a great experience in your body. And you're doing so yeah. much. That's the takeaway. Yeah, that sounds good. So uh, maybe that's maybe we'll wrap it there for today. What do you think? Sounds good. Yeah, sounds good. Oh, well, I guess we should just also mention yeah don't forget that other medical issues could be there too so you know if people aren't getting evaluated and they do have a scoliosis especially if it's changing get do a medical evaluation that's always the the prudent course yeah and the age yeah. too if they're you know puberty or younger sometimes uh wait and see is not the right approach that they really should also get some expert opinion at that stage yeah, because those are, again, those instances where we talked about if it's not addressed appropriately, things can continue to progress and get worse. That's the window so. where there's some interventions that can really make a difference yeah. as we go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Great. Time to wrap yeah. up? Yeah. I think so. So. Well, thanks to our sponsors. They make this possible, and we only pick sponsors that we really believe in, and we do believe today's Handspring and ABMP, but all the sponsors that we have helping us out, thanks to all of them. Stop by the website for the show notes, for CE credit updates, for the extras that might come with this, for the references I mentioned. That would be thethinkingpractitioner.com. My site also has, in our blog page, also has those things, advanced-trainings.com. And your site has that too, Whitney. What is your site? We do also, and we're over at the Academy of Clinical Massage.com and also through social media on uh, Facebook. You can find us there at Academy of Clinical Massage. And if you've got questions or ideas, other input that you'd like to send to us, 
please feel free to send that over to us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com. And if you will, also rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And please do tell a friend to share the word so we can help uh, get this information out to as many people and share it with other people out there in the manual therapy worlds. Thanks, Whitney. Good to talk to you today. Thanks for keeping me on track. All right, good. We'll do it again sometime soon. We'll see you all again in two weeks. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.